now, we are reading about the mid-1930s. I often think about men and women born around the turn of the century with grandparents who still spoke of the atrocities of the Civil War. An entire generation grew up seeing the First World War, raised families during the Great Depression, were then old enough to watch their sons and daughters asked to step up to the unprecedented challenges of World War II, and then had grandchildren go off to Vietnam. With memory of economic and societal catastrophe in their recent memory, they then faced the prospect of sending those that they fought so hard to protect off to battlefields both foreign and domestic. That history is our story. Their DNA is in our blood. The word unprecedented, it's been used a lot these days, you know, without precedent, without a similar experience to which to compare a particular situation. Right now, we are experiencing a great societal experiment, one that sees if we can slam on the brakes of life for as long as we can in order to flatten the curve of this virus's effect and thus aid our limited healthcare system. We're doing this for medical staff, we're doing this for those who are most vulnerable to this virus, and we're doing it for each other because we're still learning what this thing can do when it's let loose on a society. On the news and perhaps even in our own neighborhoods, we've seen examples of those who are not taking this seriously. But I pray that that is the exception and not the rule. Because we're also seeing a society step up to this challenge in ways that just two weeks ago might have seemed impossible. I believe that we can do this. I believe that we can do the necessary things to step up to the needs of the day. I believe this because... The unprecedented is not unprecedented. This might be the first time we've faced a worldwide pandemic in, in our lives, but, but it isn't the first time humanity have been, has been asked to step up to an insurmountable task. But here's the thing. Courage, strength, sacrifice, self-control and a desire for freedom from that which holds us in chains aren't things that we need to invent for such a time as this. Those things are our inheritance offered to us freely by God's holy grace. We've been working through the book of Exodus for Lent, and I know we haven't been able to spend all of the time on the important sections of this text that we we could. Uh, Our goal is to cross the Red Sea by by Good Friday. But we can gather a lot of wisdom from this ancient story. I think that when we dive in, we see that these stories were given to us to help build our identity as the children of the great I Am and root us in the knowledge that God alone is the source of the kind of strength that we need to, to live in the now. 
The passage for today is, if you have your Bibles, it's Exodus 4, and we'll actually be looking at everything from Exodus 4, 18, and actually a little bit before that, to to chapter 7, verse 13, And, and that's a good bit of text, so we won't actually look at the whole thing. Instead, I want to pick out a few parts for us to consider. So far in the story, we've seen how the people of Israel are enslaved to the tyrant Pharaoh, who, for purposes of this story, represents a figure of evil. He, he is a figure that kind of embodies and represents evil. History tells us that the pharaohs of Egypt, they positioned themselves as intermediaries between the gods and the people. Egypt worshipped the sun, which makes sense when you consider the role that the sun and other natural resources played in their life. The sun, the moon, the stars, mineral resources, and the realities of life and death that came from living in proximity to the Nile River, they all factored into the makeup of their society and their association with with gods and god kings. Israel, uh, then enter Israel into that picture, right? A people descended from one family who were told that they would somehow bless the world. Israel believed in one God, the the great I Am, who we learned last week is called Yahweh, a name that speaks to his self-existence. After many years of turmoil at the hands of Egyptian taskmasters, a boy named Moses is born. The problem was that Pharaoh had decreed that all Hebrew children be slaughtered. So Moses and his sister devise a plan to place the baby Moses in the river where he's found by the daughter of Pharaoh himself. Moses is raised up in the royal household, but one day reaches this breaking point where he sees an Egyptian beating one of his own people. Moses kills the Egyptian and flees to the land of Midian, where he spends a second lifetime raising a family until one day, when we're told that God heard the cry of his people, when God remembered his covenant. One day, God appears to Moses in a burning bush on the mountain of Horeb. He tells Moses that he intends to use him to free the people of Israel from their bondage to slavery, and he intends to bring them out to a promised land. Moses is a bit concerned because apart from the incident with the Egyptian, he hadn't really done anything with his life. We're we're told very little about Moses' life, and it probably isn't a stretch to say that that there isn't much to say because there really isn't much to say. We see God do a thing here, though, that he just loves to do. See, our God loves to look a person in the eye who is a seemingly unlikely character and then say to them, you're the one I'm going to use. We saw it with Abraham, we saw it with Isaac, we saw it with Jacob, we'll see it again with David and Jonah and the prophets, and still on to the New Testament with with Peter and Paul and the apostles. Um, Of course, then we also find that as unlikely as these characters are, they actually end up being more likely than they may have realized. Uh, I'm I reminded of, um, of the, the proverb, the Klingon proverb, that Spock once told to Kirk when he said only Nixon could go to China. Anyway, 
In fact, even Jesus fits into this character. I mean, yeah, he had the whole fully God and fully human going thing going for him, but, but he was still in a backwoods town, born in a backwoods town, and grew up the son of a tradesman. That's another story, but God does amazing things with unlikely characters. Anyway, because Moses isn't a likely character for such a task, he's, he's understandably nervous. God even shows him a few tricks to do with this, this staff of God, and he's still nervous. He says to God, oh my Lord, I am not eloquent, this is my Moses, but I am slow of speech and tongue. God answers Moses by saying, who made man's mouth? Who makes him mute or deaf or seen or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now, therefore, go, and I will be like your mouth, and I will teach you what you shall speak. And Moses answered him and said, Oh, my Lord, please send someone else. You see, when God gives us a challenge, gives us a challenge, he asks us to lean not on our own power and strength, but on his. And that doesn't mean that everything from here on out is just going to go really well. It In fact, it's going to get pretty nasty. But Moses is asked to trust in the fact that God ultimately is in control. Even if he doesn't get all of the answers and details he wants, Moses is asked to believe that God is in control. But instead, Moses' answer is, Lord, please send somebody else. And then the story tells us that God started to get angry. And he tells him that his brother Aaron will help to be the mouthpiece of the people. And this isn't necessarily something that Moses couldn't have eventually figured out on his own. I think that sometimes when we're confronted with a challenge, our first impulse is to automatically assume that the burden will be entirely on us. And then God says, you know, I I never meant for you to do this alone. So Moses tells his father-in-law what's up, and clutching the the staff of God in his hand, he sets off for Egypt. On the way, God tells Moses, when you go back to Egypt, see that you do before Pharaoh all the miracles that I have put in your power, but I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. Then you shall say say to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. And I say to you, let my son go, that he might serve me. If you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son. That's a difficult verse, and I wouldn't pretend to have all of the answers to it. First of all, it seems odd that God would harden Pharaoh's heart. If God could harden Pharaoh's heart, Couldn't he instead soften Pharaoh's heart and help this whole thing go a lot more smoothly? And the bit about killing Pharaoh's firstborn son is a hard pill to swallow as well. We don't have the time, and this certainly isn't the place to dive deeply into that, although if you would like to, please see me for resources. But truth be told, those are complicated things to wrestle with. In fact, I think, especially as this is a Hebrew story, I think that wrestling with this is probably the best thing that you can do with passages like this. 
Obviously, there's issues of translation and context, but for me, I think that the answer lies in what I said earlier about Pharaoh representing evil in this story. And more importantly, we, we need to see another detail that, that maybe you've skimmed over, that God refers to Israel as his firstborn son. You might already be making connections in your own head to, to John 3.16, but I think that the crucial principle to consider is how God responds to the evil of this world. Jeremiah 3.19 says, how I would set you among my sons and give you a pleasant land, a heritage most beautiful of all nations. And I thought that you would call me my father and would not turn from following me. From this story, we see an evil that is widespread, an evil that affected everything. But God's action works through his people in ways that are both promised and unexpected. Through Israel, God is doing a mighty work of redemption and salvation, even in the midst of their suffering. In fact, it is through their, evil, uh, their, their suffering that God is going to show himself most faithful. And that happens with Israel in the, in the story of the Exodus, and it finds its ultimate fulfillment in Israel's representative Messiah of Jesus Christ. Even in the face of suffering, evil doesn't stand a chance. So Moses and his family leave Midian, and they travel back to Egypt, and as God promised, Moses' brother Aaron meets him on the way, and together they go to see the, the elders of the people, the elders of the people of Israel. Again, as promised, Aaron spoke to them, and the people believed, and it's even said that they bowed their heads and worshiped, so things are going good so far. Then, at the beginning of chapter 5, Moses and Aaron go into the presence of Pharaoh, and they say, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, let my people go, that they may hold a fast to me in the wilderness. Pharaoh replies, who's the Lord? that I should obey his voice and let Israel go. I do not know the Lord, and moreover, I will not let Israel go. Note the question here. Remember last week when Moses was given this incredible task, his response was to ask two most vitally important questions, questions that he needed for the moment, and also questions that, that you and I need to ask every day. The questions are, who am I and who is God? Here, Pharaoh is asking the same question, but he's doing it in kind of like a sarcastic way, right? Who is this so-called God? I don't know him. Don't you know who I am? I'm Pharaoh. Then they said, Moses and Aaron, well, it was the God of the Hebrews who had met with them. And they even say, please. I found that was an interesting phrase, a different, interesting word to find in the story. Please. Let us do this journey. And Pharaoh just loses it. He accuses them of taking the people away from their work and then doubles down on his cruelty. He tells the slave drivers that they can no longer provide straw for brickmaking. Their quota will remain the same, but the resources are going to be that much more strained. I read that this week. 
And I was reminded of the doctors and nurses and other medical staff who right now will be asked to continue their work of providing quality health care with dangerously limited resources. Anyway, after Pharaoh makes this declaration about straw, the taskmasters have to enforce it, which in turn makes the Israelites furious. First, they're furious at Pharaoh for instituting the law, and then they turn their anger on Moses and Aaron. They say, the Lord look on you and judge, because you have made us stink in the sight of Pharaoh and his servants, and you have put a sword in their hands to kill us. So Moses instructs the taskmasters, taskmasters, and the taskmasters instruct the people, and the people cry injustice, and the taskmasters just say, stop complaining, you're just lazy. And then the people cry to Pharaoh, and then the people cry to Moses and Aaron, and then finally Moses, has, he's had it, he cries to God, oh Lord, why have you done evil to this people? Why did you ever send me? For since I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has done evil to this people, and you have not delivered your people at all. So everything's just going swimmingly at this point. Sometimes things get worse before they get better. But that is by no means an indication that God is absent. The text doesn't mention God's reaction to Moses' accusation, but God just repeats his promise to Moses and reminds him, this thing didn't begin with you, Moses. You know, it didn't even begin with Egypt. God has been doing a thing since the beginning of creation and on through the patriarchs of Israel to bring about salvation to a broken world. Moses had more interaction with God than most, and even he couldn't have a clue at the enormity of what God was up to. And neither do we. We're not called to be the Savior. We're just called to follow the guy who is. And the truth is that even when we play our part, it doesn't mean that we'll experience immediate success at least not in things that we see, God gives Moses a direct word of promise and instruction, and Moses takes that to the people, having just spoke to God himself, and we're told that the people didn't listen to Moses because of their broken spirit and harsh slavery. Moses is disheartened, but then God tells Moses, it's time to go back. It's time to go back to Pharaoh and inform him again, let my people go. Moses says, the people didn't listen to me, Pharaoh, and they're definitely not going li- to, people did uh, listen to me, and Pharaoh definitely isn't going to listen to me. But God tells them to stick to the plan. And again, Moses and Aaron go before Pharaoh. So have a look at chapter 7, verse 10. So Moses and Aaron... They went to Pharaoh and did just as the Lord commanded. Aaron cast his staff down before Pharaoh and his servants, and it became a serpent. Then Pharaoh summoned the wise men and the sorcerers, and they, the magicians of Egypt, also did the same by their secret arts. 
For each man cast down his staff, and they became serpents. I love the Prince of Egypt scene with this, with uh, was it Steve Martin and uh, Mark Short, I think. Yeah, anyway. But Aaron's staff swallowed up their staff. Aaron's serpent swallowed up their serpents. And still, Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and he would not listen to them as the Lord had said. You know, this sets the stage for what is to happen next, right? What we'll get into next week. The word translated serpent is used elsewhere in Scripture to speak of how God will overcome evil once and for all. The important thing to see in this story is that um, magicians didn't lie to Moses about their ability to conjure serpents. They actually did it. Our enemy is a liar, to be sure, but that doesn't mean that he will not use any means necessary to draw our attention away from God by using means that are quite real. He is not beyond doing a seemingly mighty worldwide act of outrageous challenge. And he, in the midst of it, he will lie to us, and he will tell us that we are alone, and he will tell us that hope is lost. Nothing could be further from the truth. The truth is, church, that we are never alone. For God is always with us. The truth truth is that hope is never lost. But the kingdom of God is within our grasp. The truth is that this too shall pass. The end of Revelation paints this picture of our ultimate hope. Revelation starting in the beginning of chapter 21, Revelation. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw a holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death will be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, or crying, or pain any more. For those former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And he said, Write this down. For these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage. And I will be his God. And he will be my son. That's our story. This is our inheritance. That is our DNA. That story, even if it is the things to come, it's still our inheritance. It's still in our blood. This now and not yet 
part of Christianity. That's what we're living in right at this moment. Because you see, we are the church of Jesus Christ. And nothing, not this virus, not economic turmoil, not injustice, not hunger, not anything will be able to separate us from the hope that is in Jesus Christ. Let me pray for us. Father, I am in awe of this moment. I will confess that I am scared at times. I am angry. I'm unsettled and I'm uncertain. I lay everything that I am at the foot of your cross. I lay these things that are, that are unsettled in me, in you, in the one who I am completely confident has this whole thing in hand, the one who is the great I am, the one who is Yahweh, the one who is the self-existent one, the one who is ultimately in control in ways that I can't even fathom. Father, help me just play my part in being obedient to your holy path, to seek first your kingdom, to take this one day at a time, and to do the things that I need to do in order to protect others, to love others, and serve them the way that you are serving them as well. Father, help me follow your lead and the lead of your Son, Jesus Christ, through the power of our Holy Spirit, of your Holy Spirit. And it's in the most holy name of Jesus, I pray. Amen.